Welcome back to another edition of the Searchers Film Podcast, where we aim to discover or rediscover the movies you should know about. Today's show, we discuss an overlooked gem. And I am your host, Christopher, and today I have both of my lovely co-hosts, Benjamin and Kevin. Say hi, guys. Hey, guys. What's up? <laughs> yeah, so, um, Hitchcock, where you guys, where you guys stand with Hitchcock? Who's that guy? I don't know who that is. Alfredo Hitchcock. <laughs> hey, get your hitch off my cock, man. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. I should have seen that one coming from a mile away, but I just freaking am it. Yes. Okay. Am it, Ben. All right. Hey, Way to break get, your, get, your, get your AIDS away from my cock. <laughs> oh my goodness. You can tell okay. it's late at night when well, we're uh, it is. cracking these it jokes. Is. And, really I'm, dr- early, right? and yeah. I'm drinking a La Croix. Yes. And that, that's that's French for LaCroix. I guess. Just like our good friend, Mr. Leahy. Rest in peace. You're right. You know liquor. I am the liquor. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we're losing our minds. So today's people. today's episode, I mentioned an overlooked gem in the intro. And the film we are talking about today is Alfred Hitchcock's vastly misaligned piece um, and also overlooked Topaz from 1969. And really short plot. I'll just run right into it. Topaz is a 1969 American espionage thriller film directed by Alfred Hitchcock based on the 1967 novel of the same title by Leon Uris. The film is about a French intelligence agent who becomes entangled in Cold War politics before the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and then the breakup of an international Soviet spy ring. And I think that sums it up very concisely because if, anyone who has seen Topaz knows that it's an incredibly dense film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if if we try to tell you the whole plot beat, we're going to be here for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be here forever, people. But yes. Yeah, so really dense and it's very counter to the spy films of the 60s in which James Bond became a household name. And overseas, there was also other spy films made in the shadow of Bond, like the OSS-117. I can never remember that agent's particular name, but those set of spy films were also a fad and up and coming during the 60s and 70s. Do you guys have any background with Bond or the spy films of the 60s? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Grew up watching a lot, uh, a lot of Bond uh, as a kid, and uh, that OSS seven one seventeen. That one is that's something I need to get into. That's a blind spot for me, and I keep hearing about it. Uh, I hear about it frequently. Well, so the appropriate missing out. Yeah, I've only seen one or two of the OSS one seventeens, but the appropriate thing of bringing those films up is our leading man. Frederick Stafford actually played the very character. He was OSS 117. He was already really? being typecast. I yes. didn't even know. I didn't even know. Yeah, well, Hitchcock know picked him. It's starting to make some sense now as to why he was picked. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Hitchcock picked okay. him because of his previous um, entries as OSS 117. And he had a few other spy films where he played. There's at least one where he played Agent 505 in another movie so he was already being t- 
typecast as the handsome leading man, very spy, spy guy. Didn't, didn't, mm-hmm. very, did very it, debonair. Yeah. Didn't yes. Hitchcock go after Connery for this movie too? I'm actually not sure of that. I want to say he went after like a lot of people before he came across Frederick uh, Stafford. Maybe I'm, I believe that, I believe that's true. But what actually what what drove a lot of the end result, I don't want to say the end result, but what drove a lot of things were some precursors with Alfred Hitchcock and the studio. There was a lot of fallout between a lot of his usual people who worked with him. The famous one being James Stewart after Vertigo. They never made a film together after that because Hitchcock thought, Stewart was too old for the part and the audience wasn't connecting with him anymore. I and about yeah. that, yeah. Yep. That was a sad and thing, yeah. Sad thing to see. And then the other famous breakup was between him and Bernard Herrmann, his uh, usual composer. composer. Yeah. Yes. And he was going to have Herrmann do this film, Topaz, but they were not seeing eye to eye on how the film should be. So Hitchcock broke it off with Herrmann and he ended up getting Maurice Jerry to do the score who is actually a well-known composer in his own right. Um, is that how you pronounce his name? Jerry? Maurice oh, Jerry, Jar. I believe. I thought it would have been like Jare, but... Mm. Yeah, Jar as in... Like Pronouncing a, a, things, a, people. <laughs> Here we go again. Back. <laughs> so, well, excuse me if I'm mispronouncing uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would do that research. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, so... I suppose I'm getting the Jerry thing because there's actually a character in the movie named the same J A R R E. And right. I believe he's called Jerry as a last name. Mm-hmm. So that's why I, that's why I rolled with it. Oh, okay. You might be right then. <laughs> I could be mistaken though. Chris might be um, right. So going into the Hitchcock regulars. Uh, right. Chris, before you before you were going to go into that, sorry, uh, the, you brought no, up no you, you brought up Bond. How many Bonds uh, Bond films have you seen? I have not seen all of them, but I've seen a lot. I've pro- I've probably seen five to seven. Okay, yeah, I'm so, probably on the lower end. Oh wow, I mean that is I've seen over half, but yeah. So yeah. you you only live twice, Karen Dor Karen Dor rather. Um, yes, she was a Bond girl in that one. Uh, the jet, the one in Japan. And what year was that? 67. So right before this. So he definitely got her because of that. Um, so you can see where he got his inspirations from. And I, I don't think that disproves what you were saying about how he couldn't get other people that he may have wanted, but there was a lot of studio interference with that. Um, because previous to making Topaz, Hitchcock was trying to make a film that's now known as Kaleidoscope that he was trying to shoot in 1967. It was going to be way more graphic in the vein of Psycho with like a serial killer who is, who had his own obsessions. And when that was scrapped, he basically went to the studio and he was like, what do you guys have for material? And they threw him, they threw him this. They had the rights to Leon Uris's novel. So did either of you guys know about that? I didn't know about that piece of trivia at all, but that's, a, that's yeah. really interesting. So he was searching for material to uh, direct. It, he, was. he was. He was, okay. This, this had intrigued him out of what 
slim pickings, I guess you could say, of what they had left. And he had recruited his, he has a few people that he recruited and kept on for this film. So he has Samuel Taylor, who wrote Vertigo. He picked Samuel Taylor to write the screenplay for Topaz. And he also has his loyal costume designer, Edith Head, doing all of the costumes. And I think you can see that after watching the film, that that's a highlight in itself. At least oh, for yeah. me, it is. I think set design and costume design are, I think, really, really just the cinematography are some of the highlights of the film. Although, albeit I do have a few criticisms, of it, which I'll delve into later on. But yeah, the visual sure. quality of the film, uh, those are some of the highlights of Topaz. Yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous looking film. Yeah, and it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Shout out to Jack Hildyard, who is the cinematographer. He was a frequent collaborator of David who did oh. movies such as The Bridge on the River Kwai. But very extravagant looking and, and detailed and layered compositions of exterior shots, which we get here. But there's also a lot of good looking interior shots too. Mm-hmm. And some of the complaints that people have with this film, Topaz is they still think Hitchcock was stuck in his ways with some of the rear projection in, in car rides or, mm. or how he has, I can see that he still used or how he still used set pieces for mm-hmm. the scene, such as uh, when they're in Harlem, that he, yes. he used a set for that. So yeah. there are people who have critiques with those sorts of things where they, where they say that, Oh, he really didn't need to do this or he should have shot it a different way. But I, th- I think those are, I think those are, uh, well, I do think the car for the, when they, at one point someone picks up somebody up from the airport and I think that was just totally whack, but I think the, <laughs> the set critique is nitpicking. Cause I didn't even notice. Yeah. I didn't even notice I, it either. I mean, I didn't mind it at all. Yes. And I, I agree ride. with that. Yeah, I actually I enjoy the car shots from Hitchcock, especially you know in the very beginning when uh, Kusinov and his family escape from uh, the KGB agents on their tail, and then you see the shot from from the interior. It's focusing on what's going on in the background. You see one of the KGB agents run out to the street and point his gun, and the way it was, I thought I love the way it was shot. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I don't he- really have any complaints with the way Hitchcock films something. So the rescue in the beginning, those car shots, I think, are done very smoothly and excellently. Yes. Um, I could see where people might have nitpicks where there's the car ride coming from the airport. But that was again, a, I think that was a convertible. So I think it's just more obvious, more obvious in that. Yeah, exactly. But I, again, I think I think it's a minor thing. And then the nitpick about the set. Yeah. And the, the nitpick about the set design, I think, is also in the same vein, because Harlem felt like Harlem to me. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. I didn't. So that entire scene, not just the interior of the building where uh, the Cuban communists are, are, are staying, but the entire, that entire scene, even the, the exteriors, that is a set. Yes. So it's not, it's not guys, Harlem. Wow. Do you guys want to talk about the set more or do you want to like start breaking down the segments of the film? Because we can start um, I, with the intro and work our way. Yeah, I think we should we should step through the film because uh, this is yeah, okay. 
the movies, it's, the runtime's a little long. It's like two hours and 20 minutes. And I think mm-hmm. breaking down the plot will definitely give the listeners a understand. An yeah, an understanding of if, if, is, is this for me or not? Because it is a lot yeah. of time to invest. So I think starting from the, that's a good idea, I think. Okay. So, yeah. So the runtime's a little intimidating at almost two and a half hours. It's an espionage film. We've already said it's super dense as far as plot goes. But the film starts off with a communist regime, its party and its soldiers are in the streets, and we get a little bit of we get an intro, we get some intertitle cards explaining what's going on, and they say among people in this crowd there is a scientist or a defector who is trying to get to the United States and wants to oppose the ways of his party. And that brings us right into the Russian or the KGB KGB defectors trying to escape. And they walk right out into the streets of Denmark. And this intro scene is more or less wordless. It's what a lot of people would call classic Hitchcock with a very minor thrill built in because they're being chased by men in trench coats And they look like they're um, worried about their well-being, right? Yes. So what I want to highlight about this, this scene in Denmark is very much like a prologue. I think the film is broken up into four sections where you have a prologue and you have the three segments thereafter that basically take place all in different, generally speaking, in different cities. You have the prologue, which involves Denmark, and the escape of the KGB defector. And then the three segments thereafter, you have a main scene in Harlem. You have another scene or a conglomerate of scenes in Cuba. And then you have the finale, which ends in France. And all these things tied together with with Topaz, which is the name of the spy ring that ends up getting unburied from the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any first impressions of the prologue film? Because I have some symbolism I want to talk about. I, if you ask me, I think the prologue, as you said, Chris, classic Hitchcock. To be quite frank, I mean, I think that might have been the most, well, I mean, I hate to get into this now, but since we're talking about the intro, I'll have to say that is probably one of the most, uh, one of the high moments of Topaz was that very beginning uh, with Hitchcock's style. Because there is a, there's a, I've written about Hitchcock's uh, utilization of a quiet, calm, and calculated nature. And I felt that, that th- those kinds of aspects that you can see in his filmmaking in previous films, they hit a home run in the intro to Topaz, more so than the rest of the film, if you ask me. Yeah, and what's interesting and and what I appreciate about the intro scene as well as another scene is Hitchcock is smart enough to take all the exposition out and give us scenes that are completely wordless that mm-hmm. harken back to his silent era where he was honed he was honing his skills as a director. Agreed. And Topaz yeah, like downhill it, stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, I and, thought it really did harken back to those really well. And Topaz feels like 
to me, it feels like a colorized silent film in many parts where we're seeing Hitchcock is on record saying that this is one of his experimental movies. And I think that's exactly right because he's, he's playing with silent era techniques. He's playing with the visual storytelling coming from the color, which I'll dig into later. And then he's also making a statement with the leading character, which is something that we'll also tie into. Yeah. Yeah. But the silent era stuff is, is pretty big and I think it's obvious when it comes up and it's, it's smart filmmaking when you can cut out the exposition and the audience can still understand what's going on. Sort of less is more factor again. Yeah. Yes. Because, Uh because we have an intertitle card in the prologue. We already know what's going on. We know why they're being chased. And the same thing goes for the scene in Harlem when we get there, when Agent Devereaux passes off his mission to Roscoe Lee Brown's character. Roscoe Lee Brown goes over to where the cube is staying at the hotel. And the first five minutes of that scene, he's explaining things to this other character. And Uh, we, we know what's going on, but we don't hear any of it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, you you don't really need it. it, it okay, let's take it back to like uh, let's whiplash to the verdict yeah, so where we we, we we did talk we we did talk about that scene where Frank or Paul Newman's Frank and, and Jack Warden's Mickey they're talking and it's it's a it, it's a wide shot from from up top but you don't hear them speak you but you know what they're talking about it's all in the action it's all in the action and reaction of the actors just explaining exactly what's going on and you don't really need that to translate for you to understand. And it's the same thing here with what Hitchcock is utilizing with that technique with Roscoe Lee Brown and the, uh, the, the, the hotel uh, front desk and then him talking to Uribe. Uh, Uribe, and, yes. Yeah, and wow, yeah, like looking back at it, yeah, the, that is a great technique that Hitchcock is using, the silent era technique where nothing really needs to be explained to you. You just use exactly. a, yeah, less is more again. You use a good amount of minimalism or subtlety to tell a, a whole story. And I think it works hand in hand with the other part of the experimental aspect of Topaz, which Hitchcock mm-hmm. is on record saying that he was trying to tell a story via color. And many people who probably take film classes now means, but I think when you say that to like a normal movie goer, you, they, they're probably saying, how the heck can you tell a story with color? Yeah. And right and in the prologue scene, I think is a great example. I, I won't have to dig into all this kind of detail for every moment of the film, but just to give an idea of what you're looking at. In the wordless scenes of the prologue, when, they're being, when the KGB family is being chased, mm-hmm. you have two specific screenshots, which you have the family in the ceramic shop. And you have the white porcelain. You have a guy in a white tank who's working on the porcelain. You have a woman in the crowd wearing a red, bright red jacket. You have another lady wearing a yellow-hued jacket. And then you have a gentleman in the back wearing blue. And those colors pop out immediately. And Hitchcock is already telling us by what we're going to figure out later, but he's foreshadowing with the color. So you have... Yeah, you have a red, yellow, and blue that pop right out along with the white. Um, but 
in the prologue, basically what I'm saying is you're getting a taste of these, the, these colors that are going to pop up again in the film. Red, yellow, and white in particular. Then you have the, sh- you have the scene where the American agent is rescuing the daughter. You have three people behind him on bicycles wearing a white jacket, a yellow jacket, and a red jacket. Again, foreshadowing the next three segments of the film. Interesting. Yes, yes. It's uh, visual storytelling, yep. (laughs) It's visual storytelling, it's very subtle, and it probably doesn't work for everybody. But I, this is all evidence that you have a master at the helm. Mm-hmm. You know, so that is, yeah, that's really interesting because I mean, I, I did, uh, uh, I did no- notice some of that myself, but it wasn't of a, I didn't have a, I didn't have that keen of an eye as you did when watching this one, Chris. But uh, that is that that's really interesting. Like just what you can, th- that was something about Hitchcock where I read. I mean, he wasn't really. I'm not sure if it, if this is correct. Maybe you can uh, correct me on this. But I thought I read somewhere that. He wasn't really a fan of he wasn't really a fan of using words to tell a story, Hitchcock. He was yes. always, always a visual storyteller. And then that is rooted in the fact that he always he he always drew his his own storyboards during pre-production. Yes. During the pre-production phase, he did nothing but draw his own storyboards and everybody, all the principal actors, the cinematographer, they always had to follow that template. And it was all, it was a very strict template. He knew what he wanted to show. That was a big thing about him. And I think that uh yeah, that style doesn't fail here with, with Topaz, especially when a colored film, he's got the opportunity, he's got more leeway to actually foreshadow something without telling the story. Exactly. Exactly. And Hitchcock was obsessed with pointing the camera and forcing the viewer to see particular items that he wanted you to see. Mm -hmm. Very deliberate. Very deliberate. So Mm -hmm. in Tobaz, I think he's I think he's being more subtle. But when you know you're looking for the colors that you're supposed to look for, I think the compositions of the film are gorgeously shot. And I think they do tell a story on their own. Hitchcock Mm -hmm said in interviews after Topaz that he thinks the color storytelling didn't work. But uh, I yeah, I vehemently people, yeah. disagree with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get it. I didn't know that he said that. He was, So this was kind of a disappointment for him that people didn't realize well, and, uh, certain things. Yes, and I think he mostly says... I think he mostly disowned the film because of That's his box office performance. And I, I started that sentence by saying I think... It's it's not that I think that he actually disowned this film because of how poorly it did at the box office and because of audience reactions from the test audiences. He I got see. a lot of criticism for this he film. He got lambasted for it. Yes. Oh, I see. Yes, as we'll as we'll later talk about, there were three all three endings that Hitchcock shot for this film That's after. Right. T- Test audiences saw the original ending and hated it. <laughs> so he shot two more, and that way he could release one of those endings different from what he had intended because of okay. because of the criticism. Oh, okay, I see. So he really did intend for that one ending, and then eventually, after all 
the criticism, uh, he decided to shoot two other ones as uh, compromises. That's correct. Oh, I see. I see. Wow. And All right. the compromise one is better than the original. <laughs> the one that I... the one that the one that you saw, Kevin, uh, is the second. The one that I saw. You saw is the no, second one. Is this, yeah, two out of three, and the fir- yeah. the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you watch the other one? I didn't watch the other ones, but um. So wait, Ben, you're you're saying that the ending that I saw the or yeah, did the, we all see the same ending. The, well, I saw all three. Yeah, there's the there's okay. the, there's a duel, there's a plane scene, and then there's a let's just say a. Well, it doesn't matter. It can be spoiled. A suicide scene. Yeah. Um, right. 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 And yeah. the, I think the plane scene <laughs> works. The, the plane scene works the best, in my opinion. You think the plane scene works the best? Yeah. yeah. The one that I saw. So I was, yeah, I was just looking up a bunch of different times of uh, Hitchcock's movies, and this is one of the longer ones. The longest being North by Northwest, which, yeah, I think is why I don't like that movie as much as everybody else does, because I just it's way too long, <laughs> from my opinion, for what uh, for what it is. Um. But this one, it's uh, on Letterboxd. It said it was an hour and twenty minutes. So I'm like, no, there's no way. This movie is definitely longer. Um, but the <laughs> the original movie was only 120 ish minutes, and we ours is 20 minutes longer. Uh, so I can see why, with a different ending, the one that the alternate ending, well, well the original ending, and we have the alternate on the the version that we watched. Mm-hmm. Com- and a bunch of scenes cut out. I can see why this movie was probably just like, uh, the plot was probably just a mess with those scenes cut out because it's already a lot going on with everything explained. So, yes, can you imagine cutting twenty minutes out of this movie and trying to make everything fit together nicely? I, I just don't. Bad. Is that it's a pain? <laughs> yeah, uh, Chris, is is that? I, I don't know. I'm asking you since you're the Hitchcock um, expert. Is there a reason? Why it was cut down so much? Did the did the studio force him to have it at two hours? Yes. Okay. So that, of course, studio interference always fucks up stuff. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. Hitchcock is like throughout throughout every single film he's had to deal with studio interference, trying to trim down his movies, or really just refusing to give him the necessary budget he wanted to uh, do certain things. That's been an ongoing thing in, in Hitchcock. Like, every director uh, has had to deal with that, but I think Hitchcock, he's probably one of the directors who's, who's had to uh, take that as a burden, as a huge burden on himself. It doesn't make right? sense, though, because he was like yeah. su- successfully, he, he successfully made money and probably, I would say, in all the stuff that everyone knows, you know, Vertigo, North by Northwest, uh, To yeah, Catch Psycho. a Thief, yeah, Psycho, they've mm-hmm. all made boatloads of money so i don't know why they wouldn't exactly. just have faith in him to do well, what he wants right at this point at this point in the 60s um he was was he making losers yeah he this was the third or fourth one in a row so uh, after psycho oh, shoot. Af- after psycho he had the birds he had marnie he did torn curtain and then this and so the three before the birds might have made some money i i don't yeah. really remember off the top of my head but both Marnie and Torn Curtain were stinkers. Uh, when, when you tr- when you say stinkers, do you mean your opinions of the movie or just pure box office? Oh, box pure box right. office poison. Yeah, I've heard that Torn Curtain yeah. is pretty decent, at least. Torn Curtain, Torn Curtain is excellent. It's a, that's the second one of his experimental Torn Curtain that he did right before this, mm. and Topaz are considered his most experimental films. Interesting. And okay. 
And um, that's got Paul Newman in it. And that's yeah. got Paul Newman in it. Yeah. <laughs> what a and great connection. There, there was actually some, some, what's the word I'm looking for? He had, Hitchcock took away some things from Torn Curtain. He did not like, he had a very soured experience working with Paul Newman and Julie Andrews, oh. who are oh, both really? big names. Yes. Were they both just like and, total divas? I think both of them were, and Paul Newman was a method actor, and Hitchcock's a perfection, so that was never going to fly. So why would, why would you he, cast a method actor? <laughs> I think I think again he was forced to cast Paul Newman from the studio. Of course. So he wasn't jiving with Paul Newman, but anyway. So my point is, Paul Newman and Julie Andrews are familiar with those. That's the star power that we sort of lack here in Topaz, and yeah, yeah. that's because. I think pretty on purpose, Hitchcock steered away from that because of his experiences with Torn Curtain. So there was a direct effect. Action action and reaction. Yep. Action and reaction. So he stayed away from the big names. And to make a bigger point, I think that actually benefits Topaz, even though it's probably the number one complaint people have with the movie is it lacks the star power they find Frederick Stafford's character, Agent Devereaux, to be very wooden or to not be a character that they feel for. Did you guys feel that about? Yeah, that's Devereux? something I wanted to. Uh, that's one, yeah. something I wanted to talk about because with with uh, Devereaux, with Frederick Stafford, his it's funny because I didn't even realize that he was the agent from OSS One Seventeen until you mentioned it because it all makes sense now. Because his intro into the film is very much like that debonair, very, very smooth entrance into the fray. It's such a it's almost like he's being introduced as the new 007. Yes, in a way. But, you know, honestly, from my perspective, I'm not sure if it's really just Frederick Stafford's performance uh, that uh, that uh, I wasn't that, that, you know, bothered me. It was mainly, I think, what he had to work with, to be honest. I think he was really good, but I think he was good in his intro. And as the movie kept going, I think the way I took it, it was mainly just the material that he had to work with and trying to uh, trying to live up to that material or give that star power quality, which he didn't have. So that I think was sort of a sort of a markdown for me. Well, would you agree that the rest of the cast is pretty colorful? With characters. I think the rest. I think the rest of the cast is pretty colorful. Yeah. You know? Okay. John Forsyth is, is is also fun fun to see. Um, Go Lee Brown. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's Roscoe really, Lee Brown. He, Roscoe Dorn. Lee Brown was he was great. Roscoe. Honestly. He. I, I loved him. Who? Which one? Roscoe Lee Brown. Yeah. He. Th- this movie basically kind of was a stepping stone for him to get his part in the the seventy two Cowboys movie with uh, John Wayne. So. Mm. Had to bring up Johnny Boy. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd bring that up. Yeah, I mean, I, he's definitely. I like um, Mr. Nightlinger in that movie much better because Roscoe Lee Brown just goes ham as hell as that as that character. But uh, he's much more <laughs> subtle in his delivery of this character. I mean, he's not a main character, so that's, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because we only see him for a short time in the first segment in Harlem, but we really sort of find his character, like his agent, if you will, a much more fascinating character than Devereaux. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that? 
I, would, I, I agree with that. Yeah, he stood out more. What what he did within the small time frame that he that he was given, uh, especially in the scene that we talked about, uh, or that you talked about earlier, Chris, where he talks to uh, Uribe. <laughs> Where are those papers now, exactly? In a red leather case, on the floor next to his desk, locked. If I get Para away from his desk for a few minutes for an interview, can you get the case and bring it here? He will not give you an interview. Then I fail. But I'm not going to fail in your bathroom. Come on. He did a lot more in the small, the minuscule amount that he was given. Whereas with uh, Stafford, uh, he he tried his best with the material that he was given. I'm not sure if it was him that failed. I think it was mainly just the material coinciding with his performance. Uh, that well, I want to make this point now because you're you're saying all the right things, Kevin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <So> <laughs> the the cool thing I think about Topaz, and you guys might not find it as re- rewarding. Mm-hmm because of the way that his character Devereaux is. But we all know that Hitchcock was sort of known for having um, MacGuffins in his movies. And I, th- I think, and I, I, I don't believe I'm alone on this. In fact, I'm not alone on this, but because Devereaux is very unimportant in the vast scheme of Topaz's plot, he's, he's really one of Hitchcock's best MacGuffins that he ever made like agent Devereaux himself is the MacGuffin. If you think about it, because he, he's cut out of all of the pivotal plot point scenes. He passes along all of the thrilling scenes to other people, right? Roscoe Lee Brown gets the thrilling suspenseful scene in Harlem. Wow. Uh-huh. He's, he's not in the suspenseful scene in the intro with the KGB defectors. When, plot points are going back and forth between him and John Forsyth. If you go back and watch the movie, he's literally cut out of the, of the camera, like zooms in onto Forsyth, not Devereaux. Not Devereaux, so, right. Devereaux is really just the, the tool, the unimportant tool that passes along the plot, that, that the plot goes through. Mm-hmm. Right? Interesting. So he's, he's sort of pur- purposely wooden or purposely not uh, attractive as a leading man. And this, what yeah. I mean by attractive is someone, not a, not a really, he's not a colorful character. He's, no, he's just a guy he's, filling in a space. I mean, he sees more, yeah, he, he, he sees more, ac- uh, he, his nephew, his nephew? No, his daughter's boyfriend sees more action, like, than he does. Than he does. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's another great point. And then, Let's not forget the t- when he says goodbye to Juanita de Cordoba when he leaves Cuba. Mm-hmm. It zooms in on her face, and he's just sort of blurry in the background, and yeah. then he just walks out. Uh, yep. <laughs> and then there's also the scene also when um, in in Cuba with after Juanita de Cordoba dies, which we can get into later. Mm-hmm. There's the army. The Cuban army officer picks up the phone. You know what this is? For oh, razor blades. It is where they hide the film. Hello, airport. 
¿Quién es Guerrero? Guerrero. Do you still have the Frenchman? Nothing? All right. I tell you where to find it. Any small package of racer plates. The injector type, please. Best small fit ones that slide out. Call me back. You know where. They find him and then they we don't we don't see anything happen at the airport. They just tell him that he pats him down and finds razors. That like razor it's... blade scene was hysterical. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we don't see anything. <laughs> we don't see anything happen to Devereaux. It's we're we're stuck on the other end in Cuba with the Cuban characters, and he's nowhere to be seen on screen. Yeah, Devereaux is the he's he's literally just being tossed around. And he's the one exactly. handing off things to other characters, and the focus is on those characters, not him. It's uh, yeah, that that I never saw. I, I never. That's a real, a really interesting uh, uh, perspective that you've just laid upon me, Chris. <laughs> I never really saw it that way. Spe- until now. Speaking of that, the the Cuban part, Chris. Just so I don't forget. Yep. John Vernon as a Cuban was pretty hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably thought that was hilarious. He's, I kinda, I like, I he's like the proverbial yeah. like late seventies, early eighties principal character, and I just was like, yes, the the, the Cuban accent. Uh, yeah, I don't think he can do <laughs> Cubano, man. Yeah, he had like a he had like a dirty beard. Yeah, yeah. he had a, he looks like a dirty commie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Karen so, Dor, on the other hand, a German actress playing a Cuban, I thought she did. I thought she did quite well. Yeah, I think they. I actually. I thought she was great. Yeah, I really like her, and I like. I thought I like John Vernon too in the part, yeah. even though he wasn't. Yeah, all Cuban. I, I think the, the <laughs> yeah the the Cuban part I can't take seriously, but I I do think he did really well with what he was given. Um, I the blue eyes just to me it's like what are we do, doing here? Off putting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Karen Karen Dor, I mean, I think I want to say she was either wearing a wig or had dyed hair because I don't think that's the color of her hair. Uh, like mm. that dark brown. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but she, I mean, she looked, she she was believable as a Cuban for sure. She was believable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. oh, <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a very attractive lady. Very, very beautiful woman. <laughs> okay. Well, since we're on Cuba, do you guys want to talk about, do you want to go back to the Harlem scene and talk about things you liked about that or just move along with Cuba here? Uh, I don't, whatever you want to, Chris, it, it was yeah, your whatever. your yeah. pick. All right, well, just in case if I haven't made this a solid point yet, the after the Denmark prologue where we were introduced to the colors very subtly, the first segment, which ends at a climax in Harlem, we have a lot of composition of yellow that's spread out throughout these scenes. In the flower shop, some of the bodegas have a yellow awning and... I believe Roscoe Lee Brown himself is even wearing a yellow jacket. So if you dig into the symbolism of what the color yellow means, it gets a little more interesting where yellow can mean um, that it boosts memory, it encourages communication and activity and interaction, which is even cooler when you look at that Harlem scene and you realize that Doc is giving us ex- isn't giving us the exposition. He's just letting us fill in the blanks on our own. So I think that's kind of cool. Then when you move to Cuba, you have a lot of the Cuban shots at Juanita's mansion, a lot of white. 
and white usually symbolizes purity and truth. And then the climax, what I would call the climax of the film, is a moment that reveals truth when you have that excellent shot of the Mendozas, the man and the woman that Juanita was using as her spies. They're they're in the Cuban jail cell, if you want to call it that. And there's an excellent close-up of truth with a a pair of lips to the ear. Wait a second, Uh, Chris, uh, I hate to interrupt you, but it's really just occurring to me right now because uh, the the, the Mendozas, you know, they are really, they're they're fighting for, uh, you know, that truth and and basically they're fighting for justice for, for Cuba, of course, away from the communist regime. Yes. It just occurred to me now, I can't believe it just occurred to me now, but that scene where she's holding her husband in the jail cell, it's very, the Pieta, yeah, that's what, I can't believe, it's occurring to me right now, that's very, very much the Pieta, I'm like, oh my, how did I not notice that upon first It's probably, yeah, it's probably my favorite scene in the movie, where you have Hitchcock's excellent eye capturing the Pieta, and then it moves to the really awesome close-up of her whispering. Who sent you to spy at Viriel? It's very, it's very artsy. Like I, I don't know how to describe very it. Very artsy. It's, it's a really excellent shot, excellently shot scene. I think it's like probably the best acted scene of the entire film. I, I would think I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm kind of kicking myself right now because I did not notice that was that was very much the Pieta. I'm like, man, how did I just notice that now? God. Yes. Geez. And and with Ben's comment about Vernon's blue eyes, I actually think that uh-huh. benefits the scene benefits from his. Because we get a close-up of him next. Once the name mm-hmm. is said, he pulls mm-hmm. up his arms from his legs, and then we get a shot of his face in utter realization. And it's the piercing blue eyes that really work with his yeah, reaction. Yeah, intimidating. Intimidating and really just kind of... Yeah, it's like it's not just uh, Miss Mendoza who's intimidated. It's the audience, too. Because it's like, okay... Well, now you know, what he's, gonna, you know what he's going to do now. Yeah, yes. you know what he's going to do now. Yes, and it sort of goes to uh, just a random film connection. It sort of goes to how people took away Henry Fonda playing the bad guy. The Once Upon a Time in Sergio Leone movie. Once Upon a yes. Time in the West. Once Upon a Time yeah. in the West where he was the bad guy and he had the piercing. Very true, yeah. 
yeah, so in Cuba, we have all of this white, and it's uh, about really about a moment of truth. And the climax of the film, I think, is sort of that reveal. And the film sort of climaxes early, but we don't really. And it then leads to the death of Juanita de Cordoba, which is another stunning shot. From up top, uh, right? Yeah. From up top, yes, yeah. yes. The billowing purple dress hmm. where he Hitchcock actually orchestrated the scene where he had people, there were strings attached to her dress. And they had, they had them, he had them pull the strings. So that way it would come out billowing like a pool of blood as she would fall to the ground. I see. That's wow. That's how he got it. (laughs) They had to pull the dress in you. That's he had to pull the dress in unison. And was she being, was she being held up by, by, by strings from up top too? Or was she, that was just her like really, uh, no, I think she was just step. falling on her own. She just yeah. did it herself. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I wanted to also mention, again, a little foreshadowing with color here. Going back to Harlem, after Roscoe Lee Brown does his mission for Agent Devereaux, he goes right back into the flower shop, takes over the wreath that his, his uh, worker is working on, cuts a purple ribbon that says, Rest in Peace. Yes. Foreshadowing the death of Juanita de Cordoba in the purple dress. That, okay, wow, that's great. <laughs> yeah, again, I guess when you really analyze something, you can mm-hmm. make all sorts of connections, and maybe it doesn't work for every. But mm-hmm. I have a lot of fun with this movie, and I think it gets a lot of, a lot of hate. Flack. Yeah, yeah, and the more you analyze it, the, th- the thing is Hitchcock knew what he was doing. Even with studio interferment, uh, in- interfering with yeah. what he was working on, he always had a plan. And what you said before, Kevin, he always storyboarded. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, every single top, frame, every single shot, every single frame, he knew what yeah. he wanted to show people. Mm-hmm. It was never really a collaboration with the cinematographer, as most, as a lot of directors do, where you know they come up with they they come up with a shot and agree upon something. And they they know well. They figure out where you know how blocking is supposed to happen, and storyboarding. I think really just coming from like my animation background. I mean, storyboarding is very important. However, like when it comes to live action films, storyboarding I think takes a little bit of a back burner. It's not necessarily something that is adhered to when it comes to shooting live, but it, it only depends on the on the director because anything can change. Whereas with Hitchcock, he was. His storyboards were his Bible. He followed them to the exact uh, quality that they were when he drew them. So, yeah, he's one He's one director who literally knows exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to look before it's shot. Yes, very And everyone deliberate. has to follow suit. Yeah, it's the same thing with Wes Anderson. I mean, Wes Anderson, same exact uh, method in a way. Yes, I think he's. I think Anderson's told people that he's inspired by Hitchcock. A lot of people. He's inspired are. by Hitchcock. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. W- mm. Which another example again with color, but also the deliberate, the deliberation of seeing, having a see a specific item, goes back to the red briefcase in Harlem. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of close-up shots of the red briefcase, and then, I I meant to mention this when you, when you said 
Uribe's character before. Mm-hmm. But he he is just a straight up typical Hitchcock. Like he's the <laughs> kind of character that Hitchcock loves. Yeah. Like Absolutely loves. Kind of. Yeah. Sort of cartoonish. He had the gangly glasses, like Coke bottle glasses. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very kind. Of, very quirk. I mean, again, I hate using this word, but quirky. Quirky. Yeah. Um, Uribe is totally very eccentric, and it's totally yeah. the character, the type of character that Hitchcock loved using throughout his mm-hmm. career. Definitely. Of course, yeah. <laughs> of course, it doesn't end well for Uribe, but no. <laughs> a great character. Like a great character to kind of bask in the uh, the eminence of <laughs> within those few yeah. moments. Yeah, <laughs> definitely unreliable um, is what yeah. is what makes that Harlem scene very tense, right? Because mm-hmm. you have the good guy going into quote unquote bad guys are, and yeah. Uribe is, for all we know, is very unreliable. Yeah. <laughs> is he going to turn on Roscoe Lee Brown, right? Yeah, exactly. I know. I I was wondering what was going to happen in that scene because, you know, he he suddenly gets more paranoid than he already is. And then he suddenly you can tell that he's saying no to Roscoe Lee Brown's character. I don't want to take part in this. And that he immediately walks back. It's like, OK, what's going to happen? Yeah, it's like, is he going to call the uh, uh, Fidel Castro's uh, uh, guards and then have them take in Roscoe Lee Brown's character? But no, 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 no. Like there's so much. There's so much slyness in that in that scene from Roscoe's character and uh, the way that all culminates. It's it's great. I mean, he I love that shot where you see him um, where you see him fall and he hits that tarp. Yes. Roscoe Lee Brown's. It's like, did he just perform that stunt by himself or like, geez, he literally. I actually don't he, know. Yeah. Look, uh, I thought it was great. Just. <laughs> That entire scene. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So, do you guys have any comments you want to make about Harlem, about the segment in Harlem or the Q before we move on to France? Uh, no, Ben, you got anything for, for Harlem? No. I mean, I liked Roscoe Lee Brown and his little. I did think uh, when they. When. What's John Vernon's character? Uh, Para. I think when yeah. he realizes he lost, Opara. yeah, when it, when he realizes the briefca- briefcase is gone, he goes down and I thought Roscoe Lee Brown was getting it, but he he got away. Um, yeah, no, I I, I like well, I, I I like that that um, I guess you'd call that Act One. I think that's pretty good. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I think Cuba. One part of that. No, you go ahead, Kevin. Well, in part of that scene, though, when Paro is looking for the bread briefcase, before that, you see him write something. He's writing, uh, he's signing a document, and he puts it in that one, in that one, that one bag. And you yes. think right there, there's a moment he's... there where you think that he notices that the red briefcase is gone. So then he looks to his left and looks for something else. But yes. then actually, no, no, he didn't even notice it at that point until yes. later on. You're like, oh, here it is. It's gone. So it's like, okay, wow. And I think at that point, I think my like my like fist right to my face. I'm like, oh, dude, he's gonna notice. <laughs> Masterfully but, done, and that's Hitchcock yeah. being cheeky in his own way. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's like, man, Hitchcock, you jackass. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, that that part. I love, and I think, yeah, looking back at it now, uh, the intro, the the prologue, and the entire Harlem sequence, probably some of the um, highlights. Two two big highlights of. Um, of Topaz. Of Topaz. 
Yeah. Yeah. Ben, what do you, yeah. what do you think about the Cuban segment? Yeah. I, mean, I was just going to say, if you take Karen door out of that, I kind of just, it, lo- it loses a little bit for me. If you know what I mean, take, sure. you take the air out of that for me. But, uh, I, I do like when the, I uh, forget their names, but the two, two of her, you know, the spot, Mendoza's. Yeah. The Mendoza's. I, I do think it's kind of funny. Uh, Hitchcock made a little reference to the birds when they're doing their spying with the seagulls and, uh, and the bread, the bread and the sub, yeah, the uh, sub bread from the you know that was where sort of the hidden camera was. So yes, very again Hitchcock being cheeky. Yeah, I thought that was good. Uh, I mean, I, did, I did, I've never seen the birds, but I did get that right away. Like I, I saw the first bird. You know, there's like three or four that go by, and I didn't think of any anything of it with the first one. But after the fourth one, I'm like, all right, he's making. I get it. You're making a reference. <laughs> Dir- directors were doing this in the '60s, guys. References, self-referencing wasn't the first thing in you know 2010, whatever. A well, very clever of way of doing it back in the day. And speaking of references, did you guys find Hitchcock's cameo? Yeah. The, yes, yeah, I did. Yes, I spotted I did. him immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very obvious yeah. in the wheelchair. About to uh, <laughs> board, or no, yeah, he was about to board United Airlines, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love it. Yeah, and he put his cameos earlier and earlier in his movie. Uh, the <laughs> later he went in his career because he realized people were getting too distracted trying to find him and not paying attention to the movie. <laughs> That's He's like, okay, fine, I'm just going to be here. Okay, here I am, now pay attention. <laughs> yeah. I love so, it. That's great. Yeah, so after... All the action in Cuba. Agent Devereaux ends up back in France after stirring the pot up across the global politics and what he ended up finding out in Cuba from the Mendozas and their spy work. Mm-hmm. He realizes, or he's actually told by the American agent, John Forsyth, and the KGB defector from earlier on in the film, he is told that the spy ring called Topaz is actually a group of his own countrymen from France and that his own people from his own country are actually what's behind these ongoing uh, these ongoing things revolved around the Cuban Missile Crisis mm-hmm. so Topa- Topaz I think was the, the, the ring right it was the yeah, spider, and, the, and then there's yes. another. There's a leader of the spider ring that I think. What are they, what's he called? I forget. I I, I was just asking because I'm trying to I'm trying to remember uh, the ja- leader. Uh, Jack Jack uh, Granville. Yeah. I, oh, you're talking about Michael Pickley's character. Yeah, yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, I just thought right. that. Science yeah, yeah, it. that's it. But I just thought there was another name for like the leader of the topaz maybe i'm wrong maybe they maybe they were just maybe they were just saying you know in the plot someone says like code names yeah someone just says like this guy's the leader of topaz or something no one no no one knows his identity but regardless yeah Yeah. they he goes back to france and a lot a lot of stuff happens i think the third act is the best act because it it kind of the the cuban the Cuban part, just the sec- second act of the movie, just kind of fell a little flat for me because I just think it dragged a little too much. But this is when everything starts to build up and things are happening, and I kind of like the third act the best, honestly. Um, it's kind of a hot take because a lot of people they didn't enjoy a lot of people don't like much. 
Yeah, people, a lot of people don't like the third act. So, Ben, why don't you tell us what you liked about the segment in France? I just like that <laughs> we're getting to the end of the movie. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I, I like when they get there, we're finally seeing... I mean, you're you're asking yourself the whole time, what the hell is Topaz? What is this? What is this? What is this? And finally, you, you know what's happening. And there's more action. There's people getting murdered. Um, I just think it was... I think people... If someone says, oh, the third act was the weakest, I think they're just getting... Maybe they're getting a little fed up with the movie or they don't know what's going on and they're lost. Because the plot is super thick i mean if you're not if, if you it's very if you, if you look down at your phone for 20 seconds you're probably going to be lost if you if you don't catch a, <laughs> if you don't catch a certain part of yeah, dialogue is... or or you don't see it like i will be honest the scene in which karen door died like i didn't even see it i had to rewind it because i was like what just happened she's on the floor like i literally i looked down <laughs> that quick for that long and it, i didn't even hear the gunshot really i don't know what was happening mm-hmm. in my head but um, that's just an, ex- it's yeah, just an example not, of one. It's this very, is not yeah. a film that you can put on in the background. No, mm-hmm. no, and, and, that you really and gotta, just have on. You have to pay. You got to devote yourself to it. Yeah, yeah. In a way, I mean, I guess like this is this might be a dumb statement, but I mean, for gamers out there, this might be Hitchcock's sort of Metal Gear film. If you if you know what. Oh, I mean. there you go. Is that is that do you, do you know what I'm saying, Chris? Well, I do. Why is, you're it, saying. Why is it yeah. the Metal Gear because, film? Oh, because the, because the cut Hideo, scenes, the cut scenes, but also like just Hideo Kojima, he he adds so much denseness to Metal Gear, and there's so much meaning behind everything. There are so many twists and turns. There's so many connections involved, and in a way, I guess I could kind of see how that parallels to what Hitch does with Topaz, because if you yeah, it's not something that you can just like. Uh, you can't just like play through the game and not know what this is. You have to really pay attention because there's so much involved and so many surprises involved as to way how things work. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like in those games he like makes the most bizarre long ass. Well, no, that, yeah. but he he makes the yeah. most bizarre long names. Like the names yes, are like really does. hard to remember, and like, yes. like you have to yeah. like yeah pay attention. As you said, naked snake, solid snake, <laughs> liquid snake. Well, I'm. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid Five. I played that, and I, I love that one. I, I didn't even finish it because it's just so so long. <laughs> There's just so many names, man. Too many names. A lot, of, a lot of names. Yeah, <laughs> a friend of mine. That's exactly I, I what's going on Shout here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that that. Wow, I'm finding these little connections and these little tidbits because uh, of you, Chris. So thanks. <laughs> oh no problem. But yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the third act, I think, uh, well, I don't, I'm not sure if I can say it's like a, a weak spot, but I don't think it really, uh, in my opinion, I don't think it really uh, sells itself as well as to, to the ones that I just uh, clamored for earlier, which was the, the, the prologue and uh, the scenes in Harlem. I think those were, were really the big high points uh, for me when it comes to, um, you know, the, the sections of the film. Yeah, I can understand that, and I, I, I personally think my favorite segment is the Cuban one. The Cuban one. And yeah, and that's probably because two of the best scenes are in that middle section, which we've already discussed regarding the Pieta and the dress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think those are two of the best, some of the best things Hitchcock ever shot. Yeah, definitely some beautiful shots there. Yeah, 
and Hildred's cinematography is is quite amazing in in a lot of the transition shots regarding the planes mm-hmm. when Devro takes off to go to I think he's going back home from Cuba mm-hmm. that one plane shot with the with uh, the sunrise Oh, beautiful shot! Very, very beautiful, beautiful shot. shot. Yeah, uh-huh. yes. it's amazing because I think they had to time that. They had, they definitely had to time that shot to perfect the, you know, like it's like you yes. need the right setting here. So yeah, it's amazing because nowadays, you know, people are not going to waste time for that or even, uh, even bother to have the budget for a for a scene like that. That's just going to be fixed in post. <laughs> yeah, budget and schedule. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One thing also I want to mention uh, when it comes to the, the third act, I think like a big highlight of that, um, of the of of when they're back in Paris, is the what I forget the character's name, but I know the actor uh, Philippe uh, Noiret. Yes, the guy with the you know the busted leg. He's he's basically he's the limp. Yeah, he's he's got the limp. I think really he's <laughs> in terms of actors. Same with like Roscoe Lee. He's kind of in that same vein. He stands out so well. Just the way how the the way he's trying to keep his composure or just kind of remain on the down low. Have any of you in your official work had any hint of aspiring called Topaz? What kind of a ring? There's a number of Frenchmen, compatriots of ours, high in official circles, working for the Soviet Union. I go, Jean, sit down, I need you. I have nothing to do with spies. I'm concerned with exposing them. This is a fairy tale. How do you know about this ring of spies? The Americans have a Russian defector high in KGB. We know that. Yes, that is known. I saw him. I was allowed to talk to him. He told me. Aspiring? Cortopez? Yes. What is the name of this defector? Boris Kuzenov. Andre, that's not possible. Why? <laughs> the KGB official of whom you speak, Boris Kazanov, has been dead for over a year. This man who has been planted on the Americans is obviously a double agent. And he has taken in the Americans, <coughs> and he has taken in you. How do you know that? What makes you think that? It's a matter of record. I have it in my phone. The way he portrays that whole thing just by remaining quiet and eating as much as he could. And uh, eventually when you see uh, Devereaux's son-in-law go and interview him at his, uh, at his house or his apartment, whatever, just the way he acts in every scene, you kind of get, there's a feeling of, okay, you know, I should be against this guy, but I kind of feel some sympathy for him. <laughs> I, <laughs> he, I actually completely agree with you. Yeah. Like, like his innocence 
kind of juxtaposed with the fact that he is one of the masterminds behind this whole, uh, you know, with gaining or obtaining uh, enemy secrets. It's, I felt like it worked really well. It was so, uh, it's just interesting where you start, you suddenly feel sympathy for someone who's actually part of the evil mastermind. Yeah, a bad guy. Hitchcock was always Hitchcock was always great yeah. at doing that because yeah to make a to make a callback to an earlier film we sort of feel that way about Claude Rains's character in Notorious and oh, Claude Rains is supposed to be a Nazi uh-huh. and it's a really soft portrayal of a Nazi but interesting I feel as though when we watch his character come to the cl- to come to a close in that movie it's sort of the same thing here with Philip Noray. And how we sort of feel something for his character. He's not strictly yeah. he's not strictly an evil person. It's more of that moral nuance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a gray area in a way where uh you know, you know that he shouldn't he shouldn't be a part of this and you know that he is a bad guy. But then, you know, it's like you can't help but feel feel sympathy for him. Eventually you'd like to think that he's just uh He's just a tool in the shed in a way. I don't know if that makes any sense. But he's part of something that he can't get out of anymore. Yes. Agreed. And to tie the color theme up here with this France segment, um, so I I already prefaced that we have the first segment, which ends in Harlem, and has a lot of the yellow composition talking about or symbolizing communication interaction mm-hmm. and you go into the white segment white gradations all over the scenes in cuba mm-hmm. and that symbolizes truth and revelation appropriately having the pieta there in the mm-hmm. middle which mm-hmm. i think is quite brilliant from hitchcock yeah that's and great then you have then you have the third segment which has compositions of red thrown in where we finally have a lot of religious, not religious, sorry, you have um, political fervor, you have passionate countrymen, you have the red mahogany of the, you have the red, which is obviously the color of blood. So, again, you have the red briefcase at the beginning in Harlem, that one item foreshadowing the third act of what is to come, the revealed secrets, exposing Mm -hmm. the passionate sides of the political of the political Mm -hmm. and red i don't think i said the meaning of red did i uh no so no red is is a symbol of war or love or religious fervor so Uh it it just generally ties together with you have all these men talking in conference rooms that are their decisions and their actions are verging on precarious moments that could set the world on fire. Mm -hmm. Right. For however you want to phrase that. And then an additional thing, this is another more of my interpretation, but you have a lot of yellow and film as a whole. And I think that is subtly just coloring in the imagery of the communist flag because the whole opposition here. Gotcha. Is about a communist, right? That's essentially what the bad guy. Yes. So you have a lot of yellow and red in the background. I think that's just a subtle nod 
the I darkness that's surrounding everything. Okay, I got you. So, so Chris, do you think like the political, as you said, the political fervor was really well sold here by Hitch? I think it was because you think it the was? culmination. I think the culmination of everything that's happening in front, mm-hmm. the part that happens to be Ben's favorite in the movie. I think everything sort of comes together pretty well. And it's when you finally have bloodshed with the exception of Juanita de Cordoba's death, which just happened essentially moments before. Mm -hmm. But you have everything tied together. And again, with the red, with all of this fervor going on, there's also a more subtle thing happening with agent agent Devereaux's family where you have, he's being, he's being, he's cheating on his wife. Yes. His wife's cheating on him. Yeah. So you, you have you have this sub layer of betrayal. Yeah. Occurring oh, also, okay. and yeah. and betrayal happens in politics all the time, where you have backstabbing and cheating and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. So and you see what happens when that kind of trails into your own personal life. And yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that that's something I also uh, I, I caught on to as well. It's just, uh, you know, like the way I took Topaz is that, okay, so let's go back a little bit to the inner title, as we mentioned, post-introduction or in the prologue. You know, yes. again, somewhere in this crowd is a high Russian official, yada, 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 who, you know, agrees that he, he's going to defect. And then, um, so at this moment, I thought, okay, are we going to get like a, something like, say, a, another version of foreign correspondent or the minimally discussed saboteur um from hitchcock which i actually yes. enjoyed and great so films. yeah they're great films and the thing about those films is that they really touched upon hitchcock's support for american idealism there's a patriotic sensibility a you know a, a you know a, a pro like a, a fight against tyranny and when i see that in um topaz i just don't i I guess like really like i think it's a little bit changed now after you explain it via the visual aspects of the film and what hitchcock is trying to deliver via the visual aspects but i initially felt that the idea like that an idea like that was there but really merely just touched upon not really delved into as much however again let's go back to the idea of subtlety hitchcock is actually using it a lot via the visual moments of the film and so i think the visual moments yeah i'm thinking via it's okay oh no i was just saying like i think like just looking at it now i think my my view on that has sort of changed in a way it just wasn't yeah i I didn't really take it i didn't i didn't take it that way to begin with so i guess it might be something i'm gonna have to look at again and don't get me wrong. I mean, a lot of the things I'm I'm pitching here, I can I can totally understand how it doesn't work for mass audiences or the average movie goer because mm-hmm. there's a lot you have to you have to read a lot in, into this movie in particular, and people don't always want to do that. Right. So right, yeah. I understand. You know, when when people sit down to watch a movie, they, they don't want to have to do the hard interpreting what this means mm-hmm. or what that means. Mm-hmm. For me personally, yeah. this is the kind of movie I, I love. I love when I'm seeing a movie like this done by a master of his craft. And another step further than that, seeing it, the master of his craft do something 
covering material that maybe he wasn't but still creating something excellent mm-hmm. yeah yeah i totally get it i think uh, see i i do love watching films that way too and i think really i just sort of failed in trying to analyze everything in a film like this and i should have and you know that that's something i i don't know why i guess i just sort of uh turned some parts of my brain off when when, when watching uh this one and it's not like a deliberate mm-hmm. thing that i did but you know i do really i really do agree with the way you um interpret uh this film it's just i kind of blame myself for not analyzing it as much as i should have because i do love analyzing uh films like these and no i i understand what you're saying yeah yeah and and also just like going back to that yeah i mean see like uh, again uh, i i didn't initially i didn't think that hitchcock sold the motifs as well as he did say in foreign correspondent and saboteur with its political themes regarding american idealism and patriotism but also you know here's something uh that i found really interesting because rear window i think was my first hitchcock movie and i loved rear window i still do love rear window Oh, that was your first wow that's my first one yeah that was my very first one i saw it uh, when I was in college in our, uh, I've mentioned this one before, uh, our, our movie theater uh, on campus, my very first time seeing it on the big screen. And I was, I was, wow, awesome. uh, yeah, I was enamored by Rear Window. And the thing, but the thing is when I, after Rear Window, and then I, somewhere along the line, I saw North by Northwest. And the, my first experience with North by Northwest, I, d- I wasn't too impressed by it, for one thing, because I thought that the use of thrill and charm didn't balance each other. I thought that Hitchcock utilized charm to such a high degree that it overshadowed the thrills. I wasn't really on the edge of my seat. I didn't feel the way I should have felt in certain scenes. Interesting. And it, it just got to a point where, like, where I, okay, I'm going to watch more Hitchcock films, and I... And I realized, no, this is a this is a master this is a master filmmaker, and it grew on me. The style grew on me, and uh, so going off of North by Northwest, I saw it again, liked it even more, and I go to uh, another uh, another film like uh, Hang on a second, sorry, I'm just looking at uh, no, it's okay. What I'm doing? Checking here. out what you've seen. Yeah, um, Did you probably see Psycho or The Birds. Yes, I, oh, I didn't After see that. the birds yet, but that that that's up on my list. But Psycho was also another one which uh, thrill and charm was utilized to such beautifully beautiful degrees. But another part of uh, uh, of Hitchcock's style is the use of nonchalance, and I felt that there are many mm-hmm. moments in which characters are so nonchalant about things that it comes off as hum- as humorous, and. Well, when it comes to something uh, such as Topaz, I felt those kinds of ideas, those kinds of aspects that I'll that I'll see going through and within Hitchcock's movies, say like Rear Window or North by Northwest, it they really only touched upon. They were only sprinkled throughout Topaz. I felt. I don't think that he really sold those aspects of his style as well as yes, his previous and work. I think. And I think the charm is not there because of exactly Agent Devereaux being the tool that he's purposely being for Hitchcock as mm-hmm. as the MacGuffin. 
He's mm-hmm. he's purposely cut out of all the important stuff. And maybe that's well that that's that is unfortunate for a lot of people who are just regularly going to see a movie, but yeah. I think yeah, exactly. I think with that also knowing that it's done purposely, mm-hmm. I think changes the intent and the experimentation behind the film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But now that you've mentioned that, that to me, that he really was, he was the MacGuffin as, as the leading man, which is very, very intriguing to me now. That I don't I think we've really seen that before. You. We've never right? seen that before. No, yeah, exactly. We've never seen that before at all. And that's I like mean, one thing I wanted, yeah? I was just going to say the only example that I can think of right now is in a movie like Spielberg's War Horse, you, oh, have, that one. you have the War Horse taking us through all the moments of the war but mm-hmm. the war horse itself is really kind of the macguffin it's it's it doesn't matter really that that we're seeing everything from the horse's viewpoint or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. it's more of the point of seeing the war occur and all of the little scenes happening in between you know what i mean yeah yeah i get i get what you mean that, that's something i've been meaning to see. I never saw that. I never saw War Horse. Is that definitely worth it? I actually like that one. You but like that it's one? Right now, okay. right now, that's the only example I can think of for our uh, listeners and for and I, for you, where yeah, you have you have the leading character is actually unimportant. Yeah. See, is, re- is, re- re- yeah, I, no, I, I totally get it. Yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. But re- returning to that idea about the leading character, um. See, I guess, like, really, for me, when it comes to Hitchcock, and I do really, I really do love, uh, love Alfred Hitchcock. What I'm very much used to is seeing a strong leading man in Hitchcock's films, and that's something that um, I, I say it a lot now. But Tango's maybe I haven't, I don't say it a lot as I think I do, but it really Tango's well with the with the writing. And so you know you look at you look at a a strong performer like say Cary Grant or James Stewart or even go let's go back to his silent days of Downhill and The Lodger with Ivor Novello. Yes. So they had those three actors had such an ingrained screen presence, and the way it danced with the thrills and the charm that I mentioned earlier, it creates a sort of silver screen, you know, marriage that was magical to just see and yeah so i i think that was sort of a weakness here when you make the leading character a MacGuffin, you take frederick stafford and i think he is definitely leading man material undoubtedly it's just that the way he was used and the material that he had to work with sort of brought a stagnant tone to his performance so his entrance into the fray when he talks to darcy in the office was probably the highest point of his charisma after that yeah. I think it really just went to a stagnant tone. It plateaued in a way. I don't think you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I I do, before we get into rating this, I, I do want to read one excerpt from yes. my own review of the film. And yes. I think it sort of ties all of our topics and ideas that we've talked about together, uh-huh. especially the point that you just made about bringing up the star power. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Do it. I think this leads to the universal fact that Topaz is a truly dense film and one that cannot be handled lightly, yet it is a gorgeous film. 
Many viewers do shrug this off because it does not contain as many signature scenes for, as well as finding Stafford wooden, but there is no denying an expert of the industry for 40 years helm. Devereaux is his greatest MacGuffin, parlaying his interest of the Cold War and foreign policy against the grain of fanatical Bond film. Hitchcock is giving us all his colorful side characters, in parentheses, the everyday people, the spotlight in the fight for good. Agent Devereaux is just the tool that ties these all together, while we are also led to believe he will be like the Jimmy Stewart's and Cary Grant's of yesteryear. We are mistaken. War and politics is an unexciting game compared to pawns, and sometimes the most recognizable people are nowhere to be found. We are people always shifting behind a movement or a cause, defecting, contributing, and making deals. Betrayal is the name of the game. So that was a piece that I wrote, and I think that sort of ties everything together about the film. But the last thing I want to say before we rate, unless if you guys have something you want to add, is this is one of those films that I feel like was made for me, (laughs) where no one else may like it, but I find immense value in it. And that makes it special. That makes it really special. It makes it really special. It does. Yeah. I totally, I totally get that feeling. That's great. <laughs> and I, my, for my second watch that I just did, this was my second time watching it. Second time watching. I saw it on a gorgeous Blu-ray. <laughs> and it, I would be lying if I said it did not increase the watchability factor of this movie. Sweet. <laughs> physical media. Love to see it. Yeah, physical media. Thank getting you guys. Chris Thank on the you physical guys. media train. He's finally getting there. <laughs> the train that's choo, dying. Choo. But he's we'll he's, he's going to have he's a library. He's going to have a shelf. He's going to have a shelf now, just like we do. <laughs> trying. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep the yeah. game alive. It's dying, yeah. but we're, we're trying. Exactly. Physical yeah, I'm, media. I'm really I'm really happy to have this film in my collection. So that's awesome. Thank yeah. you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have too much more to say that it hasn't already been said. Um, I think it's a well-produced film. I think it's well-directed. I will warn people, do not come into this thinking you're getting a Bond spy thriller because you will be disappointed. Like the lead actor MacGuffin thing uh, with Frederick Stafford makes a lot of sense when you, you know, I didn't get that when I watched it. I figured that out after the fact um, and Chris brought it up. So yeah, Chris I, made I, it. He explained it really well. So Thanks. I, to me, that I think that the, if you don't have... You have the main actor as a MacGuffin. He's the, you know, the belly button of the movie. But at the same time, for me, the belly button, not belly button, but the, <laughs> the, the thing, the thing that I relate to in a movie is a main character that has a lot of swagger or has hmm. a lot of, you know, I can re- just relate to because he's trying to do something good. And, and Frederick Stafford kind of just seemed like a semi bumbling idiot. I mean, he was, when he needed to be confident, he was for the convenience of the plot, but. I just, it's not for me. Um, I appreciate, you know, you picking it, uh, Chris, since you're a Hitchcock fanatic. Uh, and I definitely need to, need to see more. As of right now, my favorite Hitchcock is still Rear Window. Uh, I think we, all three of us love Rear Window as our favorite Hitchcocks, don't we? That is my favorite, also. Yeah. yeah that's my favorite I, too, I yeah. think, like, if someone's listening to this and is like, I've never watched the Alfred Hitchcock movie, I mean, that one and like Psycho would be the two I'd recommend that you like. You have to see these two, and if you're not, if they're not for you, then I guess you can stop. But like those are t- like to me, those are the mu- the must watches. You know, uh, I think for me, uh, I think Shadow of a Doubt is uh, is I think should be tops too. I don't think okay. 
people don't seem to think about Chris, that one as Chris much, recently but. told me so to that yeah. one to put that one's on my list uh yeah, yeah, yeah. My short that, list. that one that one's great yeah so yeah, I oh and also Maurice I, I want to say his name's Jare because it's I, I just think it's, he's French but I think his score is fantastic and it's actually my favorite part of the movie besides <laughs> the besides the cinematography I think that oh nice was, shout out yeah yeah I think it was shot really well um but the music is just I think really good and fits really well with like the spy thriller it's not like a morricone score in some of his spy thrillers like the european ones but it's yeah it's it's up there it's like a eight out of ten for me uh for the score but uh nice. you want you want to get in the rate in this chris or you have more to say yeah. kevin uh, i'll go uh, first yeah 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 go for it were you gonna say something else no 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 go for it uh I'm a, i'll go first i think mine I, from how we've talked about, it, I think mine is the lowest, so we'll leave the best for last. I'm gonna go with a, <laughs> I'm gonna go with five dead Frenchmen out of ten. Five dead evil topaz Frenchmen. Half out of five. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So mine was initially at your same uh, rating, Ben. But after talking with Chris about this and looking back at it and just kind of analyzing the visual quality and what Hitchcock meant to do. And there is clearly a master craftsman at, at work when it comes to visual storytelling. I've rated it. Uh, I mean, I'm still keeping my crit my criticisms um, that I've that I had written down for my review. Uh, I know I'll be changing a bit of it, but it's been brought up to a three out of five stars. So it's, this is a six out of 10 for me. Very nice, Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I definitely so. don't. I don't hate Topaz at all, but you know, of course, I still have like those those issues with uh, with certain things that I've mentioned. I totally get the star power argument. It's mm -hmm. it's definitely something to be discussed when looking at yeah. this film. And but then you you take into account what Hitchcock was doing and making the, the lead character MacGuffin is very very interesting, but at the expense yes. of someone like Frederick Stafford, yeah. Well, and again, this was an experimental movie for him. Yeah, attempting exactly. attempting both that with the MacGuffin and the fact that he was trying to tell the story via color, and on top of that, him bringing back a lot more of his silent era technique with not giving us exposition in some of the bigger moments. There's a there's a lot mm -hmm. of different, and I don't think it's that it's too much going on. I mean, for me, I think it's I think he does it all really smoothly. Excellent. But Definitely. I can understand I can understand how those three aspects are very different and not normal. They're very unorthodox for a movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And very. your normal moviegoer isn't going to cling on to those things. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but those are three things, those are three aspects that I greatly admire. I mean, I'm I'm not into like reading about color theory or anything, but <laughs> I love how this film looks for a film that was especially for a film that was on the verge of getting into the 70s and this is another topic for another time but i think the 70s is one of the decades of film oh, uh, sorry that what was that chris the one of the best decades of uh, film uh, you said? Uh, well, ugliest ugliest oh, okay okay yeah, for, I mean, as, you, you you cut off for a second i didn't hear you <laughs> yeah no just as, just as like yeah. a just as a broad statement for like how a lot of the cinematography looks like i think it i looks, agree with you when you I get into the 70s it gets it gets very gritty it gets very almost CPU like the colors. edges edges look I, I sharper think, colors drained yeah. you, you know i think that just has 
a little bit to do with the studio system kind of getting bye bye and it, it probably does bu- budgets going down cheap mm-hmm. and it's just they want to do stuff as cheap as possible here's and, one thing that i think is fair to say about the 70s is that i feel that when you get to the 70s you kind of lose the the closeness and the intimacy of the previous eras Charm. like in the 30s the, the the 40s 50s there was sort of an intimacy with what was seen in uh, on screen and in the 70s yeah you that you you sort of lose that so i think topaz is really one of the more gorgeous films I've seen and it, and it verges right on the timeline mm-hmm. right before we kind of get into that next era of filmmaking. Yeah. So with all that said, and the fact that I really think this is like one of those films that I consider really special and sort of made for me, I am actually bumping up my score from a four and a half to a five. Ooh. All right. Sweet. And I've seen all of Alfred Hitchcock's movies and this would officially make Topaz, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, seven. This will make the this will make it the eighth perfect score from him. All right. Out of fifty six movies. I dig it. I dig it. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. the Hitchcock fanatic. Yeah, and I'm. You can say I have my own biases. I'm giving it my stamp of approval. This is totally, totally a great film. Nice man. Alrighty. Alright. Searcher the... Searcher score is seven, so that's a that's a that's recommend. Solid. That's solid, yeah. That's solid. That's good. And I yeah. think that's a recommendation too that filters out a lot of the negative flack that the film normally gets. Mm-hmm. It's All worth right. it's worth checking out. It's worth checking out. I yeah, yes, it, it wouldn't be out. the it wouldn't be the first film or the starting point for anybody getting into it, but it is a film that you should not neglect. Mm-hmm. Well, I might own this film myself someday, though, Chris. I mean, it's something to think about. Definitely, something to think about. Yeah, it's definitely a film that you can't just have on in the background when you watch it. You just got to put all your attention to it so Mm -hmm. happy that i got to pick this for you guys and kind of threw you in the deep end a little bit here really happy that we were able to talk about it yeah chris what's my next uh hitchcock movie your next one yeah you did you say you haven't seen shadow of a doubt no is that it yeah then that that's make it that one i I agree chris make that all right i'll I will do it, number one. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds good. Yeah, and uh, we want our typical little uh, outro here. Yep. Anybody who is listening, please give us a rating or write us a review. We are always looking for the feedback to improve the listener's experience. And I think that's all we have to say on this episode yeah. of The Searchers. Yeah. All right. Email us any questions at uh, thesearcherspodcast at gmail.com. All right, guys. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening.
listening to The Searchers Podcast. If you want to hear more of our thoughts on movies, you can find us on Letterboxd. Ben at Giant13, Chris at Ziglet underscore Mer, and me at Kevin Chan. Find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and on searchersfilmpodcast.podbean.com. Until next time, people.